Um, like I said, my name's Wayne Logan. Uh, I think I've met most of y'all, and I'm excited that there are many that I have, which is awesome news when you're at a church plan that's been going on for several years. So um, this morning, as you can see, we're going to be reading um, the next part of our Genesis series, Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. Um, I'm just going to read this line to you from my notes so you can appreciate what I thought was happening today and then where we're at. So it says, good morning. Thank you, Melody, for agreeing to deal with all those fun names. I didn't have to. You earned an extra crown in heaven. And then I realized Melody was reading Hebrews this morning. So I get to read all these fun names. So I'm going to start there and then pray. Um, I probably should pray first so that I can get through them all, but um, then we'll see what God's got for us. So starting in 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Not too bad. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises it holds, for the story that it tells us about yourself. And Father, for your invitation to join you in that story. I pray as we read this today that, uh, Lord, you would speak to us through your word, that, Father, you would let land all the manner of joy and grace um, and conviction from this passage that it brings us. And I pray that anything that would be contrary to that or contrary to your word would be forgotten. Thank you that, Father, your grace, as we've already said today, is greater than all of our sin, all of our missteps. And Lord, I praise you that, Lord, you are God who loves your enemies. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I uh, time myself doing this as well, and I'm sure that I'm going to go long, so I'm going to just skip the whole introduction, and we're going to keep going. So here's my three points. All right, the first one is this. It's Cain's sin multiplies. The second one is God's grace multiplies. And the third is Adam's seed multiplies. So Cain's sin, God's grace, and Adam's seed all multiply. So, again, we're starting in verse 17, which means that we're falling on the backs of last week's verses 1 through 16. So, I'm going to give you a short uh, recount of what we missed by not starting at verse 1, so that today's scene is set correctly. So, we're in the middle of Cain's life. We're told that he is born the firstborn of Adam and Eve, he and his brother Abel, and we read that he was a worker of the ground, so a farmer. Therefore, when he brings his sacrifice to God in worship... He's bringing fruits of the ground, which has always been an acceptable offering throughout the Old Testament, except here for Cain. Now, Marshall told us last week that the reason or the issue 
with his type of was not his type of offering of fruits of the ground, but the quality of it. Right. So last week we said that Abel's um, sacrifice is found acceptable and praised by God because it was his first fruits. He offered the best. Cain seemingly offers his leftovers. Okay. Again, the quality, not the type. He gives God some, but not the best of what he has to offer. And it's this half-hearted worship that God rebukes Cain for. And in Cain's anger and jealousy and bitterness towards Abel, he kills his brother. And when God comes to Cain, he says, Your brother's blood speaks from the ground. It cries out of what you have done. So because of Cain's wickedness, his labor is cursed, and he's cast out from the presence of God. That's where verse 16 ends, is Cain leaves God's presence. And that's where we ended last week, that because of Cain's sin, he's removed from the communion of his family, his identity as a farmer is destroyed, and he's separated from God. Now, we just read verses 17 through 19, where we have all of Cain's descendants for five generations, and we end with Lamech. And instead of just naming who his children are, it tells us a little bit about them. So, the abilities of Cain's descendants represent much what we classify as culture today. They develop economic, musical, and design capabilities that are praiseworthy from all. They're pursuing advancement in all these areas. What is not praiseworthy, however, is their motivation. See, it is worth noting that his descendants have remarkable skills. All of Lamech's sons are the best in whatever it is they do. They father that particular thing. But in their pride, they don't use them for good. They use them for self-promotion, for building of their own names, their own kingdoms. So, what do we see here? Nothing other than God's common grace. His grace is on full display as the author recognizes the gifts of Lamech's son, even as he's condemning their motivations, their pride, and what they use it for. Similar to what we're going to see in the Tower of Babel here in a few weeks, man is always seeking to be God himself. And that's what we see from Lamech's sons. So from the Garden of Eden to Olive Garden, humans everywhere are constantly seeking to make a name for themselves. That was pretty good, I know. They're seeking to be powerful and to be worshipped instead of worshipping God. Here's a great example. This is called Lamech's Song um, by many commentators and many people who, whose job is literally just to read God's Word and tell us about it. Um, it says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, Lamech's song exemplifies this type of growth in wickedness. He brags about exponential vengeance he has on a man for wounding him. And then murder of a young man, literally a boy in the Hebrew, just for striking him. And the image is completed in his claim that while Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech's swaggering claims are all about his own power to bring recompense. His ability to be in control and to make good on anything bad that happens to him. See, he's bragging about his own wickedness here. As if it was a trait worthy of praise. Which, of course, because of the continual growth of sin in his family and Cain's lineage, it now has become. 
You see, there's a reason this story is still centered on Cain and not Lamech. Even as we read about his, Lamech's sons, Cain's sin is still the domino that is the focal point of this passage. See, Cain's sin set off this domino effect within his family for generations to come. And that's exactly what unrepentant sin does. It doesn't just affect the sinner, but like a paint can falling and hitting the floor, it splatters everywhere. Everyone nearby is affected by what is done, with one difference. Pain just splatters. Sin splatters and multiplies. It continues to grow the longer it goes unchecked. And as Cain's family progressed, the sins of the father were not lamented but gloried in. So with every successive generation, they identified more and more with Cain's actions. His broken relationship with God, his exile from his family, and his pride in creating something to prove that he didn't need God at all, all these qualities only grow between Cain and Lamech. Literally to the point that they are offered almost as a family motto by Lamech in this song. Right? Don't miss this. He's singing a song to his wives about what he is like. Right? So what he is like is what his family should be like. And that is how he explains himself. Able to bring vengeance exponentially greater than what was done to him. But as someone haven't, Lamech takes, it, Lamech takes it a step further in his song. See, Cain's revenge is not like Lamech's. They're very different. Even though on the, on the surface they seem very similar. Here's the difference. Cain is marked and protected by God. Right? That's where the sevenfold promise comes from. All throughout God's word, seven is a number of completeness. It represents that God's perfect and complete protection is placed on Cain. So, Cain could trust that God himself would protect them, even though he had sinned so mightily. He had murdered his own brother, he had rebelled against God, he had left his presence. And yet, God has promised and set his seal on Cain that he would provide his protection, not Cain himself. Lamech, however, in his boisterous song, proclaims that he will exact extra vengeance. Not just complete and just vengeance, but excessively over-the-top vengeance. He sets himself up against God again, this time in power and in justice, each of which he is severely lacking in. But as we consider Lamech today, think about this too. Doesn't that sound a lot like you and I? We think we can handle our own problems. We think that we have the perfect plan and wonder why God's just not getting on board with what we have. Right? We know if we were in charge or if we had the power, we would do things the right way. We wouldn't make the same mistakes that other people have made, even mistakes that we think God's made. Sure, we might never say those things out loud, but in the secret places in our heart, all those thoughts abound. And at some level, it makes sense, right? We, we see the brokenness, the abuse, the distress, the injustice all around us. We know things are not how they should be, right? We shouldn't need things like common good, right? That's a blessing that we have. We get to mentor and serve and love on these children in our neighborhood, but we shouldn't have to, right? That means that there's something broken in this relationship that they need extra help, just like all of us, right? The brokenness in this neighborhood, the brokenness in us as a person, none of those things should be, right? That's not how God designed His world to work. It's because of our brokenness and sin, our fall, just like Cain's and Lamech's, that all these things are necessary. 
But what we can often forget or justify in ourselves is how we contribute to all this unrightness in the world we live in. We conveniently forget about our secret sin that hasn't come to light yet. Or we write off the habitual issues that we keep telling ourselves, oh, that's just one mistake. That was a fluke. That was a freak accident. That'll never happen again. I'm going to set myself up to never do this again. Problem is, it's just not the case. The not-so-good news is that we, too, sing songs like Lamech's songs. Whether it's our own strength, our own wisdom, our own beauty, or righteousness, or victimhood that we sing about, something else tells the story of who we are, just like Lamech. But at the end of the day, all of our songs point back to one unavoidable truth. It's that we, like Lamech and Cain, are the problem. We are the issue. I had a seminary professor who wisely coined this phrase, at least as far as I know. He said, we act like we can dabble in sin, but sin always spreads and always deepens. Right? We think we can just take one step, right? One toe over the line, but one toe quickly turns into one foot. And one foot into one leg. And one leg into, you know, just ten minutes. And ten minutes into a lifetime. That's exactly what we see here in the story of Cain's ascendance. And in ourselves is that we begin by just dabbling in sin, but it quickly multiplies and spreads to the deepest recesses of our hearts and our minds. And our only hope is that as our sin goes on multiplying, that God's grace would as well. And friends, the first piece of good news in this passage is this. It does. See, this passage says a lot about Cain, but it has far more to say about God and what he's like. In verse 16, we see that God has cast Cain out of his presence. He is separated from the promises of God and the people of God. But there's something here we shouldn't miss. The first sign of God's grace in this passage. When God sends Cain from his presence, he is sending him into a world where most people want to see him killed because of what he's done to his brother. In all likelihood, if God didn't act, if he didn't put his protection on Cain, Cain would have received the just punishment for this murder which would be someone else taking his life. But instead, God puts his mark on Cain as a member of his covenant community, a sign for all other members that this one has the protection of Yahweh. In spite of the fact that he deserves at least of all, Cain has received a special promise from God that no matter what, God is going to protect him. No matter what could happen, who could rise up against him, Cain is being protected by God in his perfect sevenfold protection. Now, we're Presbyterians, which means we get what's going on here more than most people, right? Think about the imagery here between what God does for Cain and what we proclaim every time we baptize a covenant child here. The covenant child, just like Cain, is given a mark of his place within the family and protection of God, not because of anything he's done, but because of God's grace on that person. For us, it's because the parent's faith is also counted towards the child's faith, that the blessing of a relationship with God has brought that promise as well. That even though Cain has abandoned the faith of his family, God has still promised a special blessing on him, that he would protect him. God's gracious provision of Cain was for Adam and Eve's sake. 
It's a beautiful picture of what we proclaim here every week. What a beautiful promise we make to them indeed. That even Cain remains set apart because of the faith of his parents. Even a murderer, someone who killed his own brother, received God's special blessing because a promise that he had made on no one's behalf but his own. He received an undeserved gift with a longing that he would return to a right relationship eventually. Now, in a broader sense of this act, take away everything I just said, ignore the association I'm making in this sign with what we do here. This represents a common theme across the history of God's relationship with man. Unmerited grace given to God's enemies. That theme runs rampant across God's word. You see, Cain's in open rebellion against God, and yet God protects him as he sends him out of his presence. In just a few more generations, we'll read of Abraham's first son, Ishmael, and his mother, Hagar, who God makes a promise to. If you don't know the story, you're going to read it soon, but um, Ishmael is the son that um, Abraham has with Hagar, who is Sarah's servant. It was their way of trying to continue God's promise without God because they were starting to doubt that God was going to make good on his promise. So they take this into their own hands. They have a baby through um, Hagar, not Sarah, who was the promised seed. And then they get angry and cast them out to die. But God shows up, sends an angel, makes this promise to Hagar that her son too would have a future, that he would also be a father of a multitude, that he would be the father of 12 princes and make a great nation. And these weren't just empty words. Some of you know this, but Ishmael is the father of Islam, right? An entire different people group, a multitude numbering in the billions now, all because this promise God made to protect the son of his inheritance even though he was not the promised son, Isaac, that he had been talking about for years. God was, fom- prom- was faithful to his promise again, even though he would eventually be the enemy of God's people. And these are only two examples from the first 17 chapters of the Bible. God's word is littered with examples of this, of inexplicable grace lavished upon God's enemies. Now, some of you know where this is headed. But before I get to my punchline, I'll just let me share one of my favorite examples of God's inexplicable, excessive grace. There's this man named Mes McConnell who's a pastor in Scotland. Um, his story has stuck with me for a long time. He tells the story of his stepmother's death and the obituary that he and his siblings wrote, along with all the emotions he was feeling. See, this woman was an evil woman. She was awful, abusive, wicked to her children, her stepchildren. His accounts are heartbreaking. She would do things like lock him in a closet for days, leave him in there, no food, no water, nothing. She would parade him around naked in front of her friends as she burned him with cigarettes as entertainment. There's far more that I don't have the ability to share here. But what stood out in his honest reflection about this, also the the name of the article is titled Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead, to give you a picture of what the obituary was like. But at 3 a.m., he has this epiphany that somehow she might have repented on her deathbed and been forgiven for all those evil deeds. And you get the sense that for him, this is equitable to someone saying like, well, if Hitler had you know, confessed and repented of his sins, would God have forgiven him? Right? This is someone who has terrorized him, who has done so many things to destroy his life, his joy, everything about him has been impacted negatively by this woman. So for her to potentially have received grace from God, 
Here's how he puts it. He says, imagine that. That would be the ultimate cheat. Wouldn't it? Pardon at the death for her heinous crimes against me and who knows how many others. The ultimate cheat. But then, in the midst of his anger and hatred for her, he realizes this same ridiculous grace is exactly what he needed to. He was dead to rights. He was an enemy of God, outside of the presence of God, laboring after the things of the world, searching everywhere in the culture for life and finding none. It's here that the grace he had received became more real than ever before. And folks, I hope for you it will today as well. Romans 5 makes it clear. Our standing before God, before He ever moves towards us, is one of enemy. It's not apathetic. It's not um, someone who goes back and forth, who wavers, who's um, neutral like Switzerland. No, no, no. It's enemies. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 tells us this. Some may die for a person they love, but only Christ died for His enemies. For people like Ms. McConnell's stepmother, people like me, people like you. So even as Cain's sins and our own multiply, God's grace and mercy multiply all the more. They are bearing up enough for even the most wicked sinner to be forgiven. And praise God, because we all fall in that category. Just like Mez writes in his article, this is a hard, hard truth for all of us who have considered people that have sinned so heinously against us or those we love. How could God, a just God, forgive someone like that? Just look over their sins as if it had never happened. And friends, if that's how you feel today, you get it, right? God could not do that. A just God cannot just gloss over all those wicked things that have been done. Instead, a price had to be paid. Those wicked deeds must be atoned for. But the astounding news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that someone has paid it. 2,000 years ago, that debt was settled at the cross. Paul tells us that at the cross, Jesus paid for all the sins that had happened before and all the sins that would come after. In that one moment, we can't explain exactly how that works, but one thing we can say is that God's Word makes it abundantly clear that all of us are without hope, save in the sovereign mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He shows up and pays the debt. The debt we can never afford to pay ourselves. Friends, that cost is your own life. That's the punishment, is death forever, separated from God, just like Cain. And only Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection can make us united to God again. See, God is just, but His justice doesn't look like our justice. He was entirely unjust to you and I because He offered us mercy at the cost of His own self. The just has become the justifier by providing the sacrifice Himself. This passage brings to light how Jesus understood forgiveness, doesn't it? Think about Lamech's song. Seventy-seven times I'm going to bring recompense. Fast forward to Matthew 18. Jesus tells Peter, Peter asks him, how many times must I forgive my brother, Jesus? Come on, like, give me a number so I can hit that number and move on, and I can just hate this guy the rest of my life. Just tell me. And Jesus says, no, 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 you must forgive him 77 times, or in some translations, seven times, 70 times. This is really cool. 
the opposite of Lamech's call for revenge, right? Instead of excessive, over-the-top vengeance, God instead brings excessive, over-the-top grace. Seven times 70 times, or 77 times, lavishly, excessively, far more than could ever be expected. That's how much grace Jesus said he was willing to give. And he did. So let's end our time by witnessing the final step of God's grace in this passage. Let's look again at verses 25 and 26. If we go back to Adam. It says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Cain's not the only person to receive grace in this passage. Adam and Eve have essentially lost both of their sons, Cain and Abel now, have both been taken from them. So, how is God's promise to provide a seed who would defeat Satan going to ever happen? Well, God provides another son. Seth is a son which God provides who will carry on the promise to one day defeat the snake and crush his head. Notice this pattern. In, in verse 1, you all probably can't see it here, but in verse 1 it's, it starts with, Now Adam knew his wife, right? The sons are born. Cain and Abel are given to Adam and Eve. Cain kills Abel. In 17, we hear Abel, Abel or I'm sorry, Cain's descendants and the wickedness that's grown there, Cain's cast out of God's presence, both of them are gone. They're removed. Verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again. Redemption has begun with that son, appointed by God to establish the line of Jesus, the Redeemer who would come to make recompense for all the wrongs, beginning with their father, Adam and Eve. And then, look what happens next. Seth has a son and names him Enosh. And what's it say about Enosh's birth? And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What a swing. Cain is cast out of God's presence. Both Enosh, God's presence has returned. Kenneth Matthews captures this, um, this phrase perfectly. Here's what he says. He says, Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer cities and civilized arts. But Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. Cities and livestock, music, craftwork, they're all great. They're not worship. On their own, they are separated from God. Now, God placed with those things can lead us to worship, right? They can lead us there, they can assist us in worship, but they're not worship. Worship is meeting with God. Anything we do there is worship because God is with us. And my friends, worship, that's what we're made for. Seth and Enosh knew what they were made for. Sometimes, I think we forget. I think we would rather have nice things or a good name or countless other things the world has to offer. But can I remind us again, Cain had all those things. Cain didn't know God. Sure, he had met him. He lived near him for a while. He heard about him plenty. 
didn't know God. For all his hard work, he never got any closer. The Tower of Babel is a great, magnificent feat of man. But for all their labor, God still had to come down to meet with them. Right? They built a tower to try to reach God. And it says, God had to come down. He had to condescend just to speak to them and to spread them over the world. They can't really accomplish anything that, that pleases God without Him. But you know you know she got to be in God's presence? It just says He called on His name. And you know who gets to call on God's name? His children. The seed had been planted and it's growing. Adam and Eve, to Seth, to Enosh, to the long list of folks we talked about all through Advent, the men, the women, the Gentiles, the Jews, the prostitutes, the kings, all the way to a lowly manger where the creator of the earth was born as a baby, laid in a feeding trough for animals. The brilliant flourishing tree of the family of God is still blossoming, still growing, still being engrafted with messed up sinners like you and me. And friends, in case you've never heard this before, you're invited to be part of that family. God's Word, over and over again, is an invitation to join this family, to be a part of what this promise has been made from the very beginning to the very end, that sinners get to be made right with God because of everything He's done and nothing that we've done. The seed that would crush the serpent's head has already done it. He's already accomplished it. And the seed died. I don't know if you know much about seeds, but in order for a seed to bring new life, it has to die. And Jesus has died. And He's grown from the earth. He's ascended back to heaven. And His family, His tree, is flourishing. It now stands giving shelter and life to all those who would come to sit under it. Now, I'm sure being a tree has never been that appealing, right? You never sat around and thought, man, I want to be part of a tree. Maybe you have. I'm, I'm a science teacher, and I never felt that way, so I assume most people haven't. But if I can invite you today to think about this in a new way. God has promised that you can be a part of what He's doing. His family, His tree, that brings flourishing and beauty to everything around it. And all it takes to be a part of that tree is to beg God to add your branch to it. That He would engraft you in like He has for many of us. And when He does, you'll begin to call His name too. For some of you, maybe others, you've been walking with God for a long time. But you've started singing other songs too. Just like the songs we mentioned before. Something else has become what you're about. Who you are, what you think about, what you care about the most. Songs about yourself, your contribution to the world, your abilities. You've been singing these songs for a long time. And what you need is to start singing this song again. It goes, Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. God, I thank you that in a world surrounded by competing songs, by so many other things that we can run to and find our hope in, by so many other things we can glory in 
um, and try to point back to ourselves, or your song speaks the loudest. I pray that today we would reach and beg and plead that you make us part of that tree, that you reveal yourself to us more and more each day, that as we sing together today and every day, Lord, that you would make us believe it, that your grace would be so much more than our sin, that we wouldn't believe the lie that Satan would have us believe, that we could outstand your grace. Father, there's nowhere we can go that your protection, that your sign has not been put on us, that you've marked us out as yours. I pray that today we would confess those sins, those other songs we've sung, and come back to you, singing and praising you for how good you've been to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.